Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and thank you for coming into this episode of Material Business and our bi-weekly interviews and uh, this segment that we are dedicating to very successful and beautiful women in STEM. And I thank you very much, Hannah, to come in and for flexibility and uh, for your uh, availability and I'm really excited to talk to you about all these things that we have to share today. Thank you for having me and I'm also excited to be here in your podcast. Excellent. All right, so let's start because we have a lot to talk. So I'm going to just give a little introduction so people that are not familiar with you uh, will get very excited as well. So Hannah Farhat. Over 20 years of oil and gas industry experience, Dr. Hannah Farhad is one of the leading experts on corrosion and materials in the region, and that is the MENA region, right? Yes. She is a senior research director at the Qatar Environment and Energy Research Institute, Institute and the founding director of the Corrosion Center, the first center in its kind in Qatar. Her resume also includes technical service management, as well as senior inspection and lead corrosion engineering positions. She also held a faculty of engineering position at the College of North Atlantic Qatar and was the lead corrosion researcher. She has a PhD in corrosion engineering and a master's in materials and mechanical engineering from the University of Saskatchewan, Canada. Go Canada! <laughs> Her bachelor degree in materials and metallurgical engineering from Tripoli University in Libya. Dr. Farhad is a registered professional Canadian engineer. She holds international certifications in corrosion and inspection engineering. She is the first Libyan to be certified level three in non-destructive testing and inspection, and the first Libyan woman to hold an executive technical service position and an inspection engineering position. Congratulations. Thank you. She represents the state of Qatar in the International Association of Oil and Gas Producers, the International Standard Organization, ISO, and the GCC Standardization Organization. She is the founder and chairperson of the Qatar Forum for Corrosion and Materials Engineering. Dr. Farhad is an advocate for women's rights and gender equality. She is the founder and former chairperson for the Qatar Women Engineers Association. She also founded the MENA Women in Engineering and currently acting as the chairperson of the group. Dr. Farhat received the Distinguished Women Engineers Contribution Award for the Canadian Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists in 2005 for her work in promoting engineering profession for young females. She was also awarded the Women Change Award of Engineering Creativity by the Doha Women Forum in 2022. Wow, that is quite a, an accomplished uh, career, uh, Hannah, and thank you so much for giving us the time and being here with the audience. Thank you for having me. So tell me, why did you start your life in STEM? Why did you decide to go into engineering? <laughs> uh, like any 
person who went to STEM and engineering, I, I liked science like anyone. Um, I went to engineering, to be honest, because my best friends decided to go study engineering at the beginning. So it was not any passion for engineering. However, you know, uh, in high schools, when I was in Libya, we have to decide about where we want to go from high school. And my dad is a medical doctor. So I went to him and I said, you know, I'm thinking of studying engineering because most of my friends are going there. And, you know, I like math. I like physics. I like uh, chemistry. So I think I can do well at it. And he's like, no, no, engineering is not for women. You have to do medicine. That would be good for you, but not engineering. It's not for women. And that's when I thought, I really want to study engineering. <laughs> so my dad's rejection for the profession was the main reason that motivated me. It was at the beginning, you know, you go with what your friends wanted, try it, see if you like it. But what he said that it's difficult, it actually was the main reason why I succeeded. And I did very well at university because I wanted to prove to him that it was a profession that we could do. And that uh, I like it. And I think if I did something else, I wouldn't enjoy it and love it as much as I love what I'm doing now. Wow, interesting. So that is where, yeah, if you annoy enough your kids, they can, you can push them into something very successful, right? <laughs> I think so. And I think, and I think he's, he's now proud of me, you know, being a successful engineer. He actually said it. He said, I've done well at it. So, so it's good. At least I changed his mind about the perception of engineering, uh, you know, and women in engineering. Absolutely. It's such a, it's such a great thing when you see uh, people that are close to you changing behaviors just because you have proven record of you have done different things and then you're succeeding that is really really good I bet he's proud so let's talk you have been in in different places uh, different countries different you know opportunities and challenges let's talk a little bit about that do you think it is the what we called opportunities for women is the same in this region and in Canada and back in Libya. What is your perception of that? Yes, the opportunities would change based on where you are, but also based on the time. So when I was in Libya, when I started, for example, when I studied engineering, there were only few girls in the classroom. And I had some classes or labs where I was maybe the only woman in there. And then when I did my, you know, my first job, uh, I worked in an office where it was all men and I was the only woman there. It's different now. So the time is also plays a factor here that we should consider too. But working in different countries, of course, is, is also different. So in Libya, as I started and I started my career in 1995 as an engineer, and that was really difficult for women to do a real engineering work. Most of the work that we have been given was office work or work that, you know, you could do design, but you could not do any testing. You could not do any inspection. You could not go to the field. So uh, so that was the time. At that time, that was the trend. But at the same time, Libya is one of the MENA countries and uh, engineering profession is always perceived as a male profession. Women always 
are perceived that they're not the critical thinkers. They cannot make decisions for themselves. You know, everybody decides for you when you are when you are a woman in the Middle East most of the time. And so so this is, you know, you get in an, into a profession where you will be the person who solves the problems. But the society believe, no, it's a man who would solve your problems. You know, you want to marry a man, your father, your brothers have to decide if this man you picked or you chose is the right man for you because you as a woman may not make the right decision because you're a woman, you know. So this is, we have this perspective in this region. And I left the region and went to Canada uh, to do my graduate study. And I also immigrated to Canada to, to move in a different environment. And it's completely different in Canada. It's you get more chances, more respect for women uh, because of, again, the social norms. So the social norms control our life in the MENA region, whereas in Canada, the social norms are not strong and controlling uh, our lives as much as what they do in this society here. And so that gives you more freedom. But nevertheless, engineering is still a male dominant profession. And Again, even in Canada, you wouldn't be surprised to face also discrimination against women. And you don't see many women in higher level technical positions. You know, you don't see the balance that you should see. It's much better than the MENA region, but it's just relatively different. Um, it's easier, but it's not easy. That's what I would say. And I moved after that to Qatar because my husband, you know, works here. I married the man who, who lives in the Middle East. So I moved to the Middle East, back to the MENA region. And um, it was not easy to. So my first job in Qatar was inspection engineering. And I was the um, RBI facilitator um, for a petrochemical company. And uh, when I started, my office was in the plant, but my first year, I wasn't allowed to do any work in the plant as an inspection engineer. And uh, I was shocked because, you know, I was in an environment where it was mixed. There are lots of Western expats. My boss was Western, but he was one who was like, no, you cannot go to the field. It's only five minutes walk from my office to the plant. And I'm an inspection engineer. And, and I asked him, how do you want me to inspect the plant? By imagination? I'll imagine that there is a leak somewhere, you know, because then why you gave me this job? And I had to stand up and I had to say no. And eventually I was able to, to work in the plant. It was not easy. Uh, it was much easier in Canada than in Qatar. But, um, but also you get the feel, you know, you get... Uh, because it's difficult, you also get more power to resist and you get the satisfaction when you accomplish something. And the day that I went and joined the shutdown, there were 1,000 men, over 1,000 men in the plant. And I was the only woman there performing shutdown, you know, performing inspection and climbing equipment. That was for me was the day of my life, you know, because you break the taboo, you change things and I'm, you know, I'm proud to say that in the same petrochemical plant now, they have few women engineers that are in the plant, working in the plant. So it just needed somebody to start. And so, so it's it's not as easy bath as what it is in North America, but it's also it's not ideal in North America as well. Wow. 
quite a, a, a picture that you have painted. And uh, thank you so much for the good description. You're you're doing the things that I always and I, I say it. I, I think I'll have to, you know, somehow get this um, as part of something because it is extending the ladder what you're doing and then what you have done. And then the first time I re I heard that term, it really hit me. And then every time that I I talk to someone like you, it is like, oh my God, that's so extending the ladder. Yeah. So thank you so much because we need more Hannahs, you know, more people that are are thinking that is valuable and then we want to do it because it's our heart tells us to do it. So that's so great to hear. Thank you. So I am curious now because you said, you know, you had to pass a lot of barriers and a lot of even cultural things and uh, perceptions and obstacles in a sense so what do you think are the skills that helped you go through that and then that motivated you to don't let go and then to really push you because a lot of times we get intimidated and then we are you know we feel like in those like six foot or, or big guys are like have a, a stronger voice or we feel intimidated sometimes as as women because our voice like especially mine is not super hard right so yes. it's like what is it that you got a grip of and you say okay this skill really helped me or this when I developed this or is something that is naturally coming through you like what is it I would say perseverance I never give up and I've looked at so many goals that were impossible for others, you know, to do. And I, when I say to people, okay, I want to do this, they will be laughing. You know, when I told my friends at high school, okay, I'm, I really want to leave Libya and immigrate to Canada. And they laughed because women in my culture don't travel alone, don't live alone. And they said, you can't do that. You have to marry a man who's living there. And I said, no, I don't want a man to take me there because then... You know, I want to go by myself. I want to experience it by myself. I don't want to have the cause of the marriage. You know, the reason for me marrying is to get somebody to escape an environment that I didn't like. And everybody was saying it's impossible. And it was probably impossible because, you know, my family wouldn't, my dad wouldn't accept that a woman, you know, the men are the decision maker of families in the Middle East. He wouldn't accept that a woman will be traveling alone and staying alone and it was a big no but i continued and i learned that you have to be strategic you have to be patient you have a goal you know you're looking at over there you can't just reach by running and going there it's not gonna work you're gonna hit it and it's gonna break you know it's not gonna work but what you need to do you need to be strategic you need to think about how do i reach that without you know going too fast and breaking it or hitting it and it's not gonna work, you know, I lose it. And so I had to be patient. I had to prepare myself. So when I selected my jobs, I selected the jobs that gives me certificate that I could use anywhere in the world. 
So this will enable me to work in Canada, for example, if I go to Canada. And so I was building my plan. And at the same time, how do I get my family or the society to accept that I travel alone as a woman and not perceived as a woman that's breaking the cultural norm and a bad woman, because that's how it looked at sometimes. And um, I had to come to my dad and, you know, convince him that I had a training for one week. So I would go for one week. And then that after that, that week, we'll have another one for two weeks, then a month. Then I went for six months. And then I came and I said, I want to go to Canada to do my master's for three years. You know, so this happened gradually. So we have to understand that in order to make change, change doesn't happen in one day. It has to happen gradually. And we have to be patient because some of the young generation I see, they want things to change. We want to get improve the climate. You know, we want to have things better. We want to have gender equality. We want it today. Yes, we'd love to, but it's not going to work that way. We have to accept that we move. We don't go backwards. We go forward, maybe small steps, but these steps will be consistent. And I think that's the thing that I learned that I have to plan and I have to work towards my plan and I have to be patient to wait and it's going to happen and and I think this is how we do everything in our life what a great lesson definitely sometimes you know Google has taught us to get things immediately so if the Uber takes 30 more seconds, it's like, oh my God, this is not happening. <laughs> so uh, sometimes we we condition our brain to things to be immediate and uh, some of the biggest changes and the more impactful require time and strategy like you described. So really, really interesting. And it depends on the region. It depends on where you are. You know, in this region, they big impact and the big change doesn't work. You have mm -hmm. to be patient. You have to get people to accept the change and this happens gradually. And I, and I, this is what I find even working here. If I want to make changes at work, it has to happen gradually. It cannot happen suddenly. That's very interesting. I'm remembering right now one of the previous panelists we had, and she also said something about that, um, Claudia. And she said to me in the interview, we want to get, we want to bring this message not as a lecture or not as a we need to do this because it's better but finding a strategic like strategies to bring it uh, in a more amicable way and then get people's opinions and we were talking about gender equality so how can we make it really uh something that we we feel that we are not only talking about it but we take actions on it we believe in it yeah Absolutely, that's super great. So you spoke about the difference, like cultural differences, and um, I bet a lot of, we have a lot of questions about it, uh, especially coming from, you know, <laughs> North America and like in my, in my case, America's culture. Like what are those, uh, and you mentioned some of them, like men are the ones that take the decisions and uh, women are perceived that they cannot take those decisions uh, as wisely. Is this something that still happens or is this something that is changing as time has passed? It's a tough question. If you ask my personal opinion, I say it is still happening. 
if you see what is happening outside, I mean, we can see changes and um, and it, it we can see gradual changes. But when it comes to a real tough situation and decision, they still, and I see it at workplaces, they still tend to get the men to make the decision and the women have to wait because then it's shocking because, you know, you see everything going smooth, women get into the executive level, uh, you sit in the meetings, they value your input, everything is okay. But then when there is a critical situation, it's pretty much that the women are silent because, oh, this is critical. We need the men to put their input. And so the belief hasn't changed. It's slowly becoming better, again, as what I said before, but it hasn't completely changed. And surprisingly, it's not only for one generation. And so there is a big improvement with the young generation, I have to say, lots of the young generation, and thanks to social media, you know, and the global world that everybody's now not isolated. And so lots of the young generation are very open. Um, they are very modern and they, you know, have a lot of inclusion, they respect women. But uh, also we have lots of the young generation that actually more strict than the older generation. And so, so we have this and this, and it's like any 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 society or any way. You know, you have the extremist and you have the moderate, and we have both in this in this regard. Um, but um, in general, it is still the social norms are controlling everything, and still the women are perceived are less um, thinker than men. And for example, if I look at the highest technical positions, um, if I look at, for example, research institutes, I work in a research institutes, no, none of the research institutes has an executive director that is a female. They're all male. Um, if you look at oil and gas companies here, the highest technical executive positions are all men. Uh, women would have a higher you know, executive position, but it will be PR, HR maybe but not technical. It is still male dominant. And that's where you have the critical thinking. That's where you have the um, more the, uh, you know, the brain needed for decisions, tough decisions in technical area. And that's where the women are not, uh, not trusted. And I know that in the region, we have a lot of people um, a lot of women that actually get into uh, higher education. Um, for what I understand and the statistics is even like the women are entering engineering or STEM um, degrees in a higher and graduating in a higher rate that uh, South America or North America or where I come from. Um, but then when it comes into penetrating into the workforce or even getting higher up in the ranks, that is where things start falling apart. And I know we don't have a lot of data uh, that will back up on that, uh, on those statements. And I think that's one of the things we want to uh, touch base with. Like, what is your intake on that? Yeah. 
And that's a bit uh, sad, you know. Um, in 2015, I, after my experience here and in Libya, in terms of working in the field as a woman engineer, I started thinking of having something for women engineers in Qatar, where I am staying now. And so we started the creation of the forum for um, women engineers in Qatar. And then eventually we made it uh, Qatar Association for Women Engineers. We call it Kawiya, which means strong in Arabic. And that's the economy we still used for it. And um, uh, we launched it in 2020. And I was the person who founded it. And I had a few women working with, with me in it. And the whole idea was to have a platform where we can um, support women and collect data. Uh, when I started raising concern about having a uh, women, enough women in the workplace. Uh, in Qatar, for example, we have Texas A&M University uh, that offers an engineering de degree and more than 50% of the graduates of this university are women. But if you look at the uh, workforce, we don't see those women, they disappear. And that was my concern, where would they go? They're really doing well at the engineering school, they have done good at, you know, they went to higher education, they did masters, some of them, but where are they? We don't see them in the workplace. And so I looked into, um, number one was looking into the number of women graduating from engineering or STEM universities in Qatar. It was difficult to get data. I got some data, but it was very difficult to get data. Organizations wouldn't be willing to share any data, even though there is nothing should be, you know, this data should be open to the public and you should be proud of it. But it, they were asking that it goes through the ministry and you have to get it from the ministry. So it was a bit difficult. And then we get into the um, employment. So the employment, as far as I know, um, in engineering positions in the industry and most of the industry here in Qatar, and I talk only about Qatar because this is what I what I looked at in terms of data, it's mostly oil and gas industry. And if you look at that, um, the oil and gas industry in Qatar doesn't tend to have many women. And I told you my experience myself, you know, you got a job, a technical position, but then when it comes to practice, they want you to work in the office. They don't want you to work in the plant. And so most of the women engineers who apply for the jobs, they cannot apply for any, like, for example, you get a petroleum engineer, she would end up doing procurement, doing something, projects, you know, nothing really related to what she's doing. Uh, she studied. And so we see that. And this would limit the number of jobs that women can apply for. And so. I know one company, for example, during COVID, they, 2020, they told women who applied, they said, we're not taking any woman anymore. We can't take women anymore. And it's so sad because um, they said, well, we just laid off people. We don't have enough positions, so we're not taking any women engineers. You check, maybe there is some jobs in HR, finance, but not nothing in engineering. And, and so... Um, it is still, when it comes to technical positions, they prefer to have men. And then when it comes also to job retention, which is the other second thing, because these women, if they got jobs, then you want them to stay. And if we look at the first three years, the job retention is very low here. And mostly, most of the women quit in the first year. It's either because of 
non-healthy work environment, let's say toxic work, work environment where they don't feel they are welcomed. And so there would be technical meetings and they're not they're exclu excluded from these meetings because they don't think that they would provide input and they don't see any progress. Or if they get married and they have children, and then it's difficult for them to stay because it's still, you know, it's perceived that, okay, you are taking time out of work if you're going for maternity leave. For example, in my first job here, I was asked in the interview if I were pregnant. And that's in North America. That's forbidden. You can't ask this question. So it's like you're a ticking bomb. You know, you could explode any minute. So we want to know, are you pregnant or not? And so lots of women, when they get pregnant, they don't get the welcoming environment for them to stay because the boss will say, oh, you're working in this project now. Who's going to run it? You're going to have a maternity leave and all these. And so also many women leave. And then the third part I see here also, especially for the nationals, is the families. Some of the families don't like the daughters to work with men. And it's an environment where you most of the time you're the only woman in the room. And some families feel that this is not good, that their daughter is interacting all the time with men. So we see that the family influence uh, put a pressure on women to quit. Uh, statistics, we don't have numbers. We tried, I tried through the um, Qatar Association of Women Engineers, I tried to use the group as my, you know, statistic example. And so we gave them a survey, we gave a survey and we could try to collect data. And we did not get really good data. Some people were not comfortable to put any answer because they are afraid they're associated with companies. So if they talk about issues, it might get into the company. So there is the lack of trust as well. And as a result, we we don't we still don't have enough data. What we depend on and some numbers we get from UN, from the UN, but it's not really representing of what we have here. So now with the MENA Women of Engineering, we're trying to collect data. It's more um, general group, a bigger group. And so you don't feel that you are, you know, in a smaller community where everybody knows who you are. And so that probably hopefully gives women freedom to share some information with us. It will not represent the whole majority, but at least it will be an example. That is so great that you're creating so many spaces and uh, where people can come. And in, I say people because uh, we like when we when we say only only women, it's kind of exclusive in itself. But you're creating all those spaces for you know, sharing and uh, and coming and talk about uh, different things and then learning together and then growing together and more than anything, have support. Um, because sometimes it feels very lonely when you yes. are the only person that is different. So you are the only women, the only woman, and then you are the only, in, in my case, I'm the only Latino, uh, under 40, working in Holland, as you know, it's like many onlys. You're like checking so many boxes. <laughs> so it is really nice to have, you know, a community of support that really helps on getting you that sense that you are not alone. 
And so you talked about the, the MENA group. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? How can people join? Like how should this should be? I, I, I wish everyone knows about this and then everyone that wants to join, you know, because the more that we are like, we, if we have the same interests in mind, it is, and we come with a place, a place of love and with heart, it only has a space for blooming. So tell me a little bit about that. Uh, so the MENA Women in Engineering uh, came after the uh, Qatar Association of Women Engineers. So the Qatar Association of Women Engineers was focusing on women engineers in Qatar. And um, we've, we've done really well at it and uh, we get attracted a lot of women. But I, as what I said, when it came to getting data, because you can't improve the situation by guessing or by you know, uh, getting information from a small group of people and you're always going to be criticized. So I, my intention was always to, to make things better for women in general, but I talked only about women in engineers because I had experience in the field. So I thought, okay, I can work in that. And you start small and you could grow. And this is what we did with Qatar. And when we came to getting information to be able to improve the situation, it was difficult. And so that's where I thought, okay, um, why don't we get above that? Why don't we go with a bigger region? So women will feel more comfortable talking about the issues because they're not really monitored closely. That's number one. And at the same thing, I thought, okay, if it worked in Qatar, it should work within the region. And so the whole idea of the MENA Women Engineering is a networking group for women. Uh, we, in general, we always see that the men support each other, women, not necessarily supporting each other as much. We have a lot of good women that are supporting each other, but not really to the extent that it should be. Uh, and also, as what I said, you know, you're the, the only one in the room. And so you don't get to, you know, talk to your, you don't go, for example, men would go together golfing, they would go smoke, you know, outside, they would go in the evening together in a you know, having shisha in this region, for example, is something that the men like to do. And you, women usually in this area, they go to work and then after work, they have the family. And so they go take care of the family. They spend time with their kids and their life. So they are really isolated socially from what's going on around them. And as a result, when you look at them, this is the area that we didn't cover, is the um, development and the career development. Women don't, men develop you know faster than women because they have the they're tapping into every network and they have the connections and everybody knows them and sees their potential whereas women could be great but nobody knows them because they're sitting in the office working and they only know the small group of people that they work with and so i figured out okay if we have a network of women working together uh, in the region, there is a lot of connection and interaction between the region. So that's a good way for the women to develop, number one. Number two, to share, you know, your concerns and issue to learn from each other. So this is, you know, having like a family to to discuss your matters with them without feeling judged or without being afraid that others, you know, will take it against you. So we wanted to have a, a healthy environment for women. And then the second thing that I part is important and again it's very close to what's in this region 
and it's in other regions, but it's very close really to the MENA region. It's the uh, lifestyle. And so women are always responsible for the house. This is, we see this in almost all the cultures, but it's very emphasized in this culture. And you see it also in India, you see it like in some, in some places, Latin America, you know, it's the woman responsibility to take care of the house. Sorry. I think, I don't know how to, let me move this. I can't even mute it. I'm gonna stop a second. And okay, it stopped. Okay, sorry for that. I hope you can manage this. Yeah, so I can't hear you. Oh, sorry, I was in mute. Yeah, we'll edit okay. it, no problem. Okay, yeah. And so one thing is in, in this region that we see a lot is that the woman the house is the woman responsibility. And so when women go to work, after work, when they come home, they have to take care of the children. They have to take care of the house, cleaning, cooking, depends on the, you know, where they are. You, are, you could find the help if you are in a, one of the Gulf region where you can hire somebody to help. But in other countries, in Egypt, in Jordan, it's your responsibility. And so as a result, the, li the um, uh, life of women is all surrounded by their office and their family. And then if they get an opportunity to go out, it's usually social events associated with a family. It's either funeral, wedding, you know, with other women. And so they really don't have time to go to uh, seminars, to go to webinars, to go listen to, uh, you know, orchestra you know, or, uh, or go somewhere for coffee with friends. They don't have that time. And as a result, also, we find that their knowledge is very limited. They're very good in their certain area of science, of engineering, you know, but they're not, they don't know much about outside it. So, for example, I'm a materials and corrosion engineer. I know everything about materials and corrosion, but I will not know anything about machine learning, you know, digital twin, for example. And so, so that makes them weaker because when it comes to career development, you need someone who can manage more than one department and who would have the knowledge about these departments and that's where women lack it comes uh, and i've seen this you know in, in my work as well so you get into there are openings there are positions management positions and you would hope for women to be qualified but when you interview them you find that they don't have the right knowledge and that's because they are isolated so what the MENA women in engineering I would say one of the main goals is the knowledge sharing and what we aim to is to have women share different topics you know business investment a lawyer talking to us about laws you know and uh, women going through divorce they don't know what's their rights and what's uh, what they need and men get these opportunities because they are together you know they talk to each other they go to a coffee shop they meet somebody else and they have the group bigger and bigger so we try through this group to have an opportunity to bring in different people from different backgrounds talking about introducing topics and if you are interested at it you could just Google it, you know, because everything is available now on Google and you know what to look for. And if you're not interested, you at least has, have the basics. And these basics will help you in your work to look at things maybe differently, especially now with digital twinning, with, you know, with AI. You could change things in your day-to-day -day work, but you don't know how to do it because you don't have time to look at it. So that's the idea of also the knowledge sharing. It's improving the situation for more women. Knowledge is a strength. If you get more knowledge, you're stronger. 
And, and that's the second aspect that we looked at. And the third one is mentoring. And I have to say, we didn't start the mentoring program yet uh, because we're really still having a slow start and we're hoping to move more on this. Uh, but the idea is to have women support each other so we could get some volunteers uh, mentoring other members and then they will have bi-weekly meeting or monthly meeting and they can support them for a year and that could be an opportunity for us to help each other and grow together. Uh, these are the three areas that the MENA Women in Engineering is focusing on. Uh, to join the group, we, are, uh, we have a website. It's MENA Women in Engineering. If you just Google it, you can find us. You can also contact me in my LinkedIn, Hanan Farhat, and I could. we have a LinkedIn group, so I could put you, uh, link you to the group. Um, we're supposed to have a a bigger event you know we we do a big event a year uh, for the international day for women in engineering which is in june but we're supposed to have a meeting where we could divide the groups based on areas or based uh, either area of interest or location and so we can get smaller groups to work together and hopefully we can start that soon uh, in february that sounds so amazing and it is absolutely true. The more that you are able to broaden up your, and you and I have spoken about this before in our many conversations that we had outside of this, it's uh, the, the, the moment you realize how much you're missing on in the broader uh, spectrum of things in, in life itself and in things like, uh, I don't know, accounting and how is the investment done and how what what is the best way of planning my retirement how can I better take care of my body things like that is like yeah. and the more opportunities you have to be exposed to the things like that it is um, easier it becomes easier because you get a better understanding so I really like the idea that you sent um you put that together and then that is exactly the idea of this podcast that we can reach out people like I like to hear podcasts when I am doing my hair right yeah. so you don't have to have it. it's already you're doing it just, uh, just like it's, you're in traffic okay you can listen to something that it will uh, increase that uh, knowledge broader knowledge about anything so it's really good that you pointed out that when we are doing selection processes for someone technical, uh, sometimes we lack on when the women come in with only one area of expertise. Because as a leaders, we need to know how to place those people. And those are that those I, I think that is an invaluable, really good topic that you're talking is as a leader i want to support women but i want you guys you women that are listening to get you know that insight and then look for it so that's really good thank you so much so let's talk about hannah what will you say your younger self like if you were back in time 15 years uh, or 10 years, like whatever many years you want to go back. What will you say to yourself? You mean uh, with what I reached now? No, I mean like, um, what will you, what will you tell the younger version of yourself? 
now that you are at this position with this knowledge, like if you can go back in time in a travel machine, you can go with coffee for yourself, with yourself, sorry. What would you tell yourself? I would tell myself that there were things that made me sad. I should have not been sad about them because I think there were things that I wanted to happen and they didn't happen, but they didn't happen on purpose. And because they didn't happen, I was able to reach something even much better. So I would tell myself that I'm happy about that. Um, the other thing that I would tell myself is slow down because it took me a while to understand that things can happen, but you can't have everything at the same time. So don't push yourself hard and don't blame yourself if things didn't work. Uh, just, you know, you can't do everything at the same time. And that's when I was young. I wanted to do so many things at the same time. So I put a lot of pressure on myself. It was good. It worked. But I think, you know, it could have come later. Um, I guess those those are the two things. I cannot think of anything. I have to be honest, you know, I had a dream about so many things I wanted to do in my life and I accomplished everything. And not because, you know, I'm a sober woman or whatever, but I just because I didn't give up. And I always, when door closes, I don't, it's my way of dealing with um, difficult times. So you get a day when you're working for something and then suddenly it's blocked. It's not going to work. And I just don't sit down and cry. I would just say, OK, so this is closed. How about if I go this way and do this and this and this? And so I right away, I start thinking of a strategy to look at it and maneuver around it and go from the other side. And I think this was good way. And it took a while. Again, you need you need maturity to reach that. It took a while to reach that. But um, instead of spending time being sad and being like, you know, not feeling good, I was actually going towards another strategy. So my husband always laugh, you know, because we always talk about things. I say, well, this thing didn't work. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I say, but. You know, if I go this way, it's not going to be the same. However, it will be like this. And he'd laugh and he'd say, yeah. And then I tried the other way and I could get something, maybe not what I really wanted, but very close, you know. And so and so it's very important that you will have your energy used towards when you have difficulty, you still have energy inside you, energy maybe of anger, energy of sad, you know, whatever it is, even sadness has energy with it. All that you could convert it to another energy to move you towards another direction and try something else. And uh, nothing is impossible. You can accomplish anything you want. It just needs time. And it might not be exactly what you want, but it will be close enough. That is so good. And it is absolutely true. Sometimes we are sad or or mad or something because we were working into something really hard and it didn't happen. And it's because we have a greater purpose that is awaiting outside. And it takes sometimes weeks or months or years. And then after you're like reflecting and you're like, oh, that didn't happen because what is happening then you connect the dots at that moment yeah that is yeah, absolutely I, I, true i want to share something personal you know i i lost a child and it was a hospital fault 
I was pregnant, it was full term, and the baby died uh, because of hospital negligence. And it was a shock because it was healthy pregnancy, everything was okay, it was on my term, I went to the hospital on delivery time, and I was in the delivery room, but things went went wrong, and it was because of these staff in the hospital. And it was shocking event. So uh, my husband's first reaction was, I want to leave Qatar. I want to go. I want to go back to Canada. And uh, I had a little daughter. My daughter was two years old. I nearly died in that incident. They saved my life at the last minute, but they didn't save that. I was left unattended by no doctor came to me. So the baby died inside me because they didn't have enough staff. So it was really a, you know, a trial. It was really a, a really big trauma. And so, um, I had to stand up because I had to think about my two years old daughter. The baby that we were waiting for didn't come. Her mother was physically, you know, not moving, not fit, physically sick and not mobile. And at the same time, broken, heartbroken. And my husband was, you know, heartbroken too. So it was really tough on us. And I said to him, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not taking my daughter from her environment that she is used to taking her somewhere else. This is going to be a big shift for her and it's going to make it worse. I'm going to stay here in this environment and I'm not running away. I had, I have to fight because I need to improve the system because I don't want another woman to go through what I went through. And so I suddenly, from being in the middle of like a really tough situation. I quit my job, you know, because of that, I I figured out, okay, I want to stay with my daughter. I nearly died. Most important thing for me is my daughter, my family. I quit. And at the same time, I wasn't really ready to go back to the same place that I worked at. But at the same time, in the middle of all that tough situation and everybody was around me, you know, looking at me and just worry and people were shocked because I was sitting right away, filling documents, going to the Ministry of Health, going to the police, you know, reporting things, writing the documents. I just looking for lawyers, you know, I just got busy with that. And that took me out of of the, you know, status that and the condition that I was at. It's probably a way that I ran, I ran away from my, you know, dealing with my, uh, you know, grave and all that. It, Probably it was my way to escape, which is true because it took a while for me to, you know, look at it and think about it myself. But at the same time, I had the purpose and my purpose was I had to correct the situation. I don't want this to happen to somebody else. And it took a long time. And, you know, maybe we didn't in the court prove the um uh, the criminal, but we proved the medical negligence and the civil case. We won the civil case. The Ministry of Health gave warning letters and they agreed with what we said and they proved it. And so to me, and everybody was saying, you're wasting money, you're paying lawyers, you're doing this. But to me, it was not the whole thing. It was for me, my child died because of mistake. I have to do something. I can't get my child back, but what I would do to my child, I would prevent this from happening to another child and another family. And this was my purpose. And this was the thing that I fought for. And I told my husband, even if it comes to a record that is in a file somewhere, that's good enough for me. Because if everybody just let things go and not do anything saying, oh, 
nothing is going to happen, then it's going to continue. But if the record continue, you know, to accumulate, then this will be stopped. And this was my purpose. And so sometimes, you know, a tough situation that happened to you and it affects your life, this tough situation could be actually happened in, in purpose and you could be contributing to something better you know and then at the same time because i quit my job and i was working in the industry uh, then um qatar petroleum at that time came to me and said well we want to start a research and technology department and you're the only one that we know in the country that has a research background because i was working on my phd at that you know while i was working full-time i was working my phd and I worked in the industry and that shifted me from the industry to research. And I loved what I was doing in research and I found myself in it more. And so all that thing that happened, you know, that tragedy that happened in my life and that shift, it shifted my career to something that I enjoyed more. And it, at the same time, uh, you know, I eventually got another child and so you know, you get that, not the real replacement, but you get another child. So the families is still got someone else and uh, life continues, but it doesn't stop on what you face. And the sad thing is that nobody has a perfect, happy life. You know, everybody has lost somebody. Everybody has a grief. Everybody has moments that they always remember. You always need to take the best of that moment and you can't sit in the same spot saying this is miserable, this is bad. No, you're going to say this is bad, it shouldn't happen again and I can change it. I think this is the attitude that we should have, all of us. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, story. It's um, showing vulnerability is one of the hardest things that one can have to face and uh, coming up here and being vulnerable it is something that I really and truly appreciate so that's really good thank you for for that story and then for the conclusion right it is yeah it's something very complex uh, a lot of feelings that come into life I, I had goosebumps when you started the story but then out of all that you also kept that happy i was looking for the happy ending what is going to happen and it, it indeed uh was like that so it is really showing and i guess it's not something that happened in months it's it took like you said yeah. years to resolve so it's a lot of inner work and uh, as a couple i guess with your husband and as a family with your little daughter and uh, as a professional for yourself so it's a lot of continuous uh, work that you had to do. So, wow, what, and thank you so much for sharing and congratulations on the way that you are approaching. You're so resilient. Well, thank you. I mean, life teaches this and this incident made the family closer than ever. You know, usually when you lose a child, many incidents, the families separate. But for us, you know, we said, my husband and I, and I said, this is, I don't want to run away. I want to get justice for my daughter. And he agreed and he said yes. And we both had that as our goal. And it was, we knew that we may not get the justice that we want, but our goal is not 
getting the justice for us, but for you know preventing this from happening to others, this is what we wanted more than anything else. I didn't want any money. I didn't want anything out of it. I wanted this to not happen to others. And I, I'm, you know, at least the Ministry of Health did something to the hospital where they have regulations and checking on this. So there were improvements that happened after that, and that made me feel satisfied. And and they were, you know, when we went to them, they were expecting us to say, no, we want to have compensation. We want, and we said, we just want to improve the situation. And that's what we need. If you do that, we're satisfied. And, and I'm happy from their end because they actually did something. And so uh, you always have to think of what you face in your life, that it's a test and you have to, um, st you know, pass that test and it's whatever it is it's hard or easy I mean now I'm talking about it like this a few years ago I would be crying when I'm talking about it you know it takes time for these things to leave you and you never it never leave you it always stays with you but um, but it also teaches us that uh, we can make a bad situation better and we can you know we can't get everything we want but we can get make things better you know, uh, that's what I want to say. Like, uh, you can't get whatever you dream of, but you can make it better than what it is, what what it looks. And that is exactly what we spoke at the beginning, extending the ladder. So your life really is and truly uh, an exceptional way of showing that you extended the ladder, not only for women in STEAM or for people that want to learn, more or also in your personal life with this special situation and uh, for so many other people that hopefully uh, thanks to all new procedures and checks are having an opportunity that wasn't there at that time so it is really inspirational thank you Hannah thank you excellent so we are almost um, at the end of the time here I just have two more questions. So, has do you remember that you have, or I don't know if you have had any mentors or guides, or who did you look up to when you were growing or in your professional, like any anyone that really inspired you to do things in the way you do? I never had any mentors. I have to be <laughs> through in that. But I um, I looked up a woman in Libya that was the first woman who got education in Libya. I got connected with her when I was young and um, spent a lot of time with her as, uh, you know, like um, a family. She was a family friend, but I spent a lot of time with her in her last days. And I... I I liked how this woman changed things in Libya when there was no education for women. She was the first one who started. She had a newspaper for women and for children that I read when I was a little child. And so it was, it was, I guess, my inspiration because uh, she changed things in a society when things were not acceptable. Uh, so that's the one that I looked at uh, the most. Uh, currently, you know, I have like, a, I always admired uh, Angela Merkel. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think to me, she's like a Chancellor Angela Merkel is a very role model. She's a scientist and she went to politics and she managed to run Germany through 
tough time, tough economical time. Uh, she kept the economy in a great position. She managed very well during COVID. You know, she united all the scientists together and managed very well. And she was very honest. Uh, she was very uh, clean in everything that, uh, you know, she said to people. She was she told them the facts. So I I, I feel, you know, very um, um, I feel like she's a good role model for women in science and in engineering, because even as a scientist, she went to politics and she still did very well and kept her standards like uh, everything was clear everything had evidence to it and nothing was hidden and that's the the way that politics should be absolutely no cannot agree more with you so any last message for the audience and so i like to hear two messages one for the audience and for the younger you know generations that are listening and uh, that are watching this and then another message specific for women younger women or older women or all of us women and uh, just so what will you say to them well for the audience that are listening to us is that um i think stem and engineering is a great field and especially for the young you know students in high schools and who are thinking about profession, it's really rewarding. It's very, it's a lot of fun. It's not boring. You know, you always deal with new challenges and new problems to solve. If you like to play games and solving problems, this is a perfect place for you. So I encourage people to go to engineering. And um, for all, I would say, you know, and what uh, directed to women is that nothing is impossible. Never look at any goal that is impossible set your goals say whatever you want to do and you can do it but you know to do it you have to work hard there is nothing comes in with just sitting and dreaming you have to set goals but you have to work hard towards it starting from your education until you know going to your career setting up developing yourself setting up yourself this is very important to to follow but you can achieve your dreams for women the bath is not easy for women in engineering and in so many other professions, you know, law, business, like so many professions. It's not easy for women. We accomplished a lot. We're really moving in the right direction. However, you need to support each other. You need to stand up with each other. And you need also to not feel that you can't do things. You know, you don't, you don't feel low. In yourself so many women say oh i can't do that that's too much so the uh, you know uh, imposter syndrome that they say get that out of you but at the same time we see the opposite too because we see too much confidence and so you have to look at what you really be true like about what you really are don't you know put yourself in a situation where you're not qualified for something because you said you could do it and then you fail. That's the worst. And at the same time, don't say I can't do it because you're afraid of it. Look at it and see, you know, if you can do 60, 70 percent, you can do it, you know. But if you can do only 30 percent, please don't go for it, because that will be worse for you. You're muted. Yeah, I muted. Sorry, I, I should have known better after being doing this 
for like two years anyway. Thank you so much, Hannah, for coming. This was very enlightening. I had so much fun. Um, definitely, I'm going to talk to you. I know your schedule is very busy, but I feel like we need to bring you in many, many more times and uh, talking to, to our audience. I, I really appreciate your honesty, your vulnerability, uh, and all the teachings that you have left uh, in this interview. I'll put, we'll put the links into the MENA group and all that in the description. So the people that are listening to it in Spotify, they can link into it and then the other ones can just click on it and then you will get directed right away. Thank you. Very Thank much. you so no, much. Yeah, I really did. I really yeah, did. Thank you day. so much. And I sing you again and we'll stay in touch. For sure. For sure. Thanks. Bye bye.